From the Word of God, Isaiah 26, verses 1 through 7. On that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation is established as walls and ramparts. Open the gates to a righteous nation can come in, one that remains faithful. You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever, because the Lord, the Lord himself, is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled those who live in lofty places, in an inaccessible city, he brings it down. He brings it down to the ground. He throws it to the dust. Feet trample it and feet of the humble, the steps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. You clear a straight path for the righteous. Thank you. Well, it's good to see you guys again. My name is Tim, if we haven't had a chance to meet, and uh, I live in Portland, Portland, Oregon. Uh, I've, been, I've been coming up now for over a year and a half to help in different ways at Sound City. It feels like my church home away from home. I was helping with uh, music quite a bit uh, for uh, a lot of that time, but more recently I've been coming out to help out with uh, preaching, and I'll be doing that again today. It's great to be with you. Let me just uh, pray one more time briefly, and then we'll get into Isaiah 26. Father, we just uh, thank you for your word, uh, but we admit that we always need help to understand it uh, because we acknowledge that it's separated by language and culture and a lot of years in the past. And so uh, we just ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to help us see what you have for us in this, this passage. Uh, help us to see more clearly what you've done for us through Jesus in the midst of it. Uh, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, we're going to continue on in this uh, teaching series of Isaiah. This has been called, jokingly, Isaiah's Greatest Hits, uh, because we're kind of cherry-picking some of the better-known passages in the book Isaiah. This particular one in chapter 26, I don't know if it is as well-known as some of the other ones that we've done, uh, but but you'll probably recognize one or two of the verses that are uh, a little bit more... Uh, well known. It's uh, it's going to talk a lot about two cities and contrasting these two different cities and where our hope should rest in the midst of all that. But I want to set the stage by telling you a, a brief story of a, a key leader in church history first, because it it really sets up where we're going to uh, go in in this particular text. And that leader's name is Augustine, or some call him Augustine. I'll probably go back and forth. I don't have a strong preference, but he was a leader in the church in the kind of the late 300s, early 400s AD. He, he lived in uh, what's now called North Africa, uh, uh, in, in kind of in present day Algeria. And if you went to public school like I did, uh, that's next to Egypt. Uh, so kind of North Africa, very close to Europe, actually, very close, um, uh, very close to Italy. And this is, it was all part of Rome in that day. Um, Augustine, he, he was raised by a Christian family, uh, but walked away from faith and then really became a Christian in his early 30s. Uh, and he captured that journey in his best known work that he's known for, uh, called Confessions, which, which is kind of the first spiritual autobiography. And some, some people call it the first 
autobiography period of all time. It was a unique form of writing where he's kind of writing about his personal story of coming to faith. And he has this line uh, near the beginning of the book that, that is pretty well known. It's just a beautiful statement. He says, you made us, he's speaking of God, you made us with yourself as our goal. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And then he kind of goes on through this book to you to explain how he was restless and how he found ultimate rest in God. About 10 years later, after his conversion, he became a priest. Eventually, he became uh, a key leader, a bishop uh, in the church um, in the city of Hippo, which is modern-day city called Ottawa uh, in Algeria. And in a little bit after that then, 15 years or so after he became this key leader of this region, across the water in Italy, Rome was really functioning as the, the, the Christian capital of the Christian world at that point. And it gets sacked in 410 BC by uh, these uh, kind of group of Germanic tribes called the Visigoths, which would be a great metal band name, wouldn't it? Visigoth. Um, they look like they were straight out of a metal band too. From what I can see, you know, there wasn't pictures, but there's drawings. Um, And that really rocked the whole Christian world in the same way as when Jerusalem was destroyed at different points and then rebuilt and then destroyed again uh, for Israel. It was a huge deal. And Augustine writes uh, his second best known book in response to those events as a way to kind of reassure God's people uh, and help them kind of sort through like, what do you do when you put your hope in this particular place and it's destroyed? Uh, and that, that work, that book is called The City of God. Now, it's a daunting book. And I'm just going to confess uh, from the beginning that I have not read all of it either. I cherry-picked it um, because it is over a thousand pages of dense, dense reading. But uh, it, essentially, in, in that book, The City of God, he, he divides all humankind into kind of two categories. Uh, the first category, he, he calls people the, the city of man. And the city of man is the, the nations, cultures, businesses, ideas, politics, um, the, the kind of the, the, what humans build for themselves. It is uh, building our own world on our own terms apart from God. Uh, kind of usually united against God. And he says the city of man in this form is, is always passing away. And then in contrast... He says the city of God, on the other hand, is made up of God's people gathered under his rule and enjoying him forever. The city of God is built by God and God alone. And it's referred to in scriptures as a city, but it doesn't have like a a brick and mortar literal city identity. And it's not just for one People. It's for all people. It's just like they were talking about that they were convicted at this conference um, that some of the leaders went to this last week uh, talking about diversity. That the city of God is made up of all kinds of people from all different nations, not just one. And unlike the city of man that's passing away, the city of God will endure forever. Augustine describes the difference between the two cities this way. He says, two cities have been formed by two loves. He says, if you want to know what the difference is between the city of God and the city of man, you ask the question, who do they love? How does their love kind of get worked out in their life? Uh, The earthly city by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. 
But the heavenly city, the city of God, is formed by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, the uh, city of man, in a word, glories in itself. The latter, the city of God, uh, glorifies in the Lord. For one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is God himself. And with that in mind, we, we kind of come to this specific passage in Isaiah 26. Uh, it's going to use a lot of similar language as it talks about two different cities and, and kind of contrasts the identities of these two and the future identities uh, of those two different metaphorical cities. And it's part of a larger section uh, that runs from Isaiah chapter 24 up through uh, after 26 to, to 27. Um, and, and remember how Isaiah begins. We've been hearing a lot about it in this series so far. It's a lot of messages uh, from God to God's people of, of coming judgment. They're surrounded. The nations of Israel and Judah are surrounded by the, the, the kingdom of Assyria, which is the largest empire the world had ever known. They are not nice people. They do terrible terrible things to the people who they conquer, and they are coming for Israel. And then he predicts that, that then uh, Assyria will give way to Babylon, and then Babylon will come for Judah. And so they're, they're sitting under this incredibly, uh, just in, incredibly uh, kind of urgent threat, wondering what to do in the midst of it. And in the midst of this, Isaiah kind of flashes forward. In movie or film terms, um, uh, it would be a flash forward is when you kind of jump ahead to see a future scene. And he envisions what Isaiah and a lot of other prophets call the day of the Lord, the end of the world, the final judgment. And if you've been around the last uh, few times I've come up to preach, I, I, you're noticing a pattern. I don't know how this happened, uh, but 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 uh, my, this is I'm three for three now in the end of the world texts. I was I got to teach on the Antichrist back in August, uh, and then I got to teach on Isaiah six, which had some real end of the world kind of messages uh, last month. And so I don't know, I don't know what's going on, but I, I, I just preach what I'm told. So here we are. Um, and, and and he's going to speak of these events at the end of the world in this language of, of two cities. It was part of the inspiration for Augustine's work in the city of God. So he starts off in this section in chapter 24 in the first half of 25 talking about the destruction of, of what we could call the city of man. All the ways humanity exalts itself against God uh, and God's people. He says they will be destroyed. He says the earth will be utterly broken. It will stagger like a drunken man. Then he goes on in chapter 25 to describe, in contrast to that, the future of the city of God. And he describes it as this, this epic feast that's going to happen. And you may be familiar with this passage uh, from chapter 25. It says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And that leads us to the passage that we're at now in the midst of this section. This kind of flash forward to a hopeful end. Israel and, and Judah, they're, they're seeing nothing but bad news. Isaiah kind of flashes forward and gives them some hope in the midst of that. And it's in the hope, uh, the hope comes kind of in, in, a, in a form of a song. 
uh, you heard that as it was just read in chapter 26, it says in that day, this, this song will be sung. We could call it, I think the song of the city of God in some ways. And he, he launches right in with this city imagery. He says, we have a strong city. He didn't say we have a city that is strong. He says, he says strong here is a, is a, it's a noun, not a verb. It's the essence of who it is. Unlike our cities now, which are under incredible threat all around us, this future city that he's talking about is a strong city. Uh, and it has walls and bulwarks. If you're not familiar with bulwark, it, it means like a defensive wall. It's like that outer wall with all the big kind of turrets and stuff out, outside of a castle. That's a bulwark. Uh, it, it has defensive walls and bulwarks, but they are not physical walls. What keeps people God safe in this future strong city is God's salvation. It's a salvation is set up as a wall and bulwark. God's judgment seems all around them, but but the the, the strength of this city that Isaiah wants to give them hope with is, 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 no, God will actually save his people. They will be safe, even from this storm that's coming. But note, he has not promised physical safety in the midst of all this. In this life, uh, he didn't even promise them for himself. Like, when Jesus comes as God in the flesh... It doesn't go particularly well for him, right? It didn't go well for a lot of God's people over the years. So he has not promised that. This is a a future reality. It's a future reality for Israel and Judah because judgment is still coming on them. It's a future reality for us. And we'll talk more about that reality as we we study this passage. It says uh, in verse 2, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter. The gates are open to anyone who is right with God and who holds faithfully to God. Uh, they're open to all the faithful from all nations. Uh, and then it says uh, in verse 3, and this is the verse that you may have heard before, it's, it's a little bit more popular and well known. It says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. This, this phrase translated as perfect peace in the, in the Hebrew, uh, it, it's, it's literally shalom, shalom. Uh, shalom is the is this idea, it's not just the absence of conflict, it's the, the presence of total well-being, being, being perfectly at right, in right relationship with God, your creator, and all the people around you in your life. And when in Hebrew, I'm no expert from what I read, but from what I, I read about this is, is when they, they repeat a phrase or repeat a word, it's for, it's for emphasis and it implies like the totality. That's why it's translated as perfect peace. It's shalom, shalom. It's, it's total peace. It's perfect peace. And it says you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is, is stayed. This word means supported or sustained or upheld. It's, it's like a support beam in a structure or something uh, strong that you kind of lean against for support. He says, the one who actively puts their trust in God, who looks forward to God's faithfulness like a support structure of a building, they are the ones that find perfect peace. Perfect peace and and total well-being. In stark contrast to those who put their hope in, in their own abilities and things that they can build with their own strength. It says, says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because They trust in you. Trust in the Lord, verse 4, forever. For the Lord 
is an everlasting rock. Whenever you see the, the Lord God like this in capitals in the Old Testament, it's, the Hebrew word is, is Yahweh, which is the name that God revealed himself with. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a personal name. It's not just God as a disembodied force that's way off, far and away, not really meddling in the, the affairs of humans, kind of like the Greek gods. Uh, it's a, it's a personal God who makes himself known, who reveals himself to his people, who wants relationship with his people. We can trust in him forever because he is our, our personal God who loves us, who cares for us, and who is faithful like an everlasting rock that cannot be moved. So it starts off by singing about the city of God, the destination of God's people. Then it switches in verse 5 to to sing about the city of man. It talks about this lofty city, which is a metaphorical image for for all cities, regardless of political orientation. Isaiah kind of lumps them in, the scriptures do throughout. They kind of lump them all in as as systems that we build to set ourselves up uh, against God in in pride and self-sufficiency. Now this isn't like suburbs, good, cities, bad. It's just talking about the things that people build. I'm not trying to say the city. I, I like cities. I like living. I live in a city. Um, it says, it says they, they, they're all systems, though, at the end of the day, that, that set themselves up in pride. It says, it says he will humble them. The lofty city that, who sees themselves pridefully as, as better than everyone else and certainly with no need for God, the, the lofty city that is high up will be brought low. He lays it low, low to the ground, casts it to the dust, so much so that, that feet trample it. But not just any feet. It's the feet of the poor and the needy. The city of man, all the structures that are built to exalt themselves against God, they will not be destroyed by powerful feet of powerful armies in human power. They will pass away by the hand of God. So much so that those who trample it will be the feet of, of the poor, the steps of the needy, not the powerful and the strong. So they will be humbled. The city of man will be, will be humbled by God's power and God's alone. And then it kind of pulls back from this future, looking back to the present, talks about, about the path in this direction, the path towards the city of God. It says in verse 7, the path, is right, uh, path of the righteous is, is level. Unlike a lot of the old roads back in those days, like the old roads, you know, they didn't have much excavation equipment like we do now. They couldn't like blow up rocks like we do and, and that kind of a thing. And so the roads were anything but level. They were constantly going up and down and bumpy and, and not smooth. It says in contrast to that, the way of the righteous, those who are right with God, God makes the path actually level. doesn't mean that it'll be completely easy, but means that it's a, it's a clear path to go along. Similar to, to the saying elsewhere in Scripture uh, that comes up a lot, that, that he will make our paths straight. He evens out the road. He, he, he leads us so there's a clear way to go. And then this, I, I don't remember reading this verse, this next verse before, but I've thought a lot about it uh, in the last couple weeks preparing this sermon. It says, it says, in the path of your judgment, O Lord, we wait for you. 
says that the path that we're on like coincides with a lot of God's judgment. From Isaiah's perspective, he's saying, look, God has revealed himself. Assyria is coming for Israel, the kingdom to the north. Uh, and then Babylon is going to come for Judah, the kingdom to the south. Isaiah says the, the, the faithful are caught up in that all alongside the unfaithful. So he's looking to this future reality. He's trying to give him some hope, but he says at the end of the day, where we sit is still in the path of God's judgment. That's where we wait. Trusting in your goodness while the city of man falls apart all around us. And he says, your name in the midst of that, in the path of your judgment, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name in remembrance are the desire of our soul. This word soul in the Old Testament is almost always uh, the Hebrew word nefesh, uh, which means the deepest part of who you are, what makes you, you, your, your whole being, with all that I am, he's saying. I desire you, and I will wait for you, trusting that you're up to good, even while things seem to be falling apart. Verse nine, he concludes, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. It's, it's, if you know your Psalms well, it's very similar to Psalm 63, which may have been the, the uh, inspiration for this. It says, O oh Lord, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. He says, as the world will see your judgments, if they have eyes to see and ears to hear, they'll be able to understand more of who you are. So Isaiah 26, it's, it's a song of hope in the midst of a time of judgment. And it's a part of that bigger section that I talked about that starts in chapter 24. It concludes in the chapter after, uh, after this one, uh, in chapter 27, which essentially promises that Israel, even though it's going to seem like it's destroyed now, it will be restored and added to with all kinds of other people that belong to God from other nations. And then at the same time, Satan and all evil in the world, spiritual and earthly, will be defeated. And so the message of God through Isaiah to God's people is clear. Judgment is coming. Everything is going to change. Assyria will invade, then Babylon. It will look dark because it is. The idea of God's people uh, existing as a powerful nation, Isaiah says, it's over. But that was never the plan from the beginning. It was never going to be about one nation with one ethnic reality or, or, or national reality. But even though everything you thought God's people were going to be about is changing, there's still hope. God's people will not be destroyed. He will gather a people from all nations, and it will be a city, but not an earthly city, a future spiritual city, the city of God, to use Augustine's language. And ultimately, this points towards Jesus, because he's the one who builds the city of God. Jesus came into our world, God in the flesh, and, and the first gospel, the gospel of Mark, records his very first words as this, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is the one that, that Isaiah and the other prophets predicted that they were longing for. 
And he came inviting anybody who would listen to him to join what he called the kingdom of God, to be his people, to be with him under his rule. This is what Isaiah is talking about, what we're calling the, the, the city of God in Isaiah chapter 26. And this kingdom, just like Isaiah predicted, it would be a, a kingdom people made up of all different kinds of people, not just ethnic Jewish people. But tragically, those who were supposed to be looking for the city of God, they turned out to be more interested in building the city of man, especially those in, in power and leadership. They were, they were looking for blessing and peace first and foremost for Israel. It was kind of an Israel first kind of ethic. And, and they wanted to achieve that peace by taking as much power as possible and use that against everyone who opposed them. And it turns out to be that those Jewish leaders, just like a lot of other leaders over time, even in our day, they may talk like they're the city of God, but they're really just the city of man in a religious outfit. They saw Jesus as a threat to the power that they were trying to build. So they had him killed. But he rose from the dead. He forgave his followers who abandoned him. He made it clear that the true hope was eternal life for him and that he would return. And in the meantime, we are to hold on to that hope more deeply than anything that we can build in our own effort, in our own strength in this world. And to point to that hope with everything we have to anyone who would listen until the day when that hope is fulfilled, either through death or his return. And then we learn about what that will actually look like. The final form of that is, is actually what's described in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It was written by Jesus' best friend and closest follower, uh, a guy named John, uh, six to seven centuries after Isaiah, and yet it, it has almost the exact same language as Isaiah for describing what it will be like. In chapter 19 of Revelation, it says, uh, John, John says, I, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. The marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The lamb is Jesus. The bride is the church, all of God's people. And he goes on to describe this big wedding feast. That's the feast described in Isaiah 25. And then using uh, a bunch of other language from Isaiah in a couple chapters after that, in chapter 21, he talks about what the new city will be like. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away. That's the destruction of the city of man. And the sea was no more. And I saw in verse 2, it says, the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, just like it was in the beginning. It started off in a garden where God was with his people, and they were with their God. And then sin entered the world. They rebelled against God and that put distance between them. But now it'll be uh, just like it was in the beginning. It started off as a garden. It will end in this beautiful, perfect city 
Or he will, just like it says in Isaiah 25, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is our hope. This is our deepest hope. This is when God's promises come true. And we finally see perfect justice for everything wrong that has been done. In the, in the language of Tolkien from Lord of the Rings, when he says, everything sad will become untrue. Love that line. All evil passes away. The perfect city of God fully realized. And yet throughout time, God's people keep getting confused over and over and over again. And they try to create the city of God on earth. And despite even the best of their efforts, instead, I think they just keep creating cheap religious knockoffs of the city of man. Because only God can build the city of God. And in this life, until he returns... The city of God is built of people. It's not built of structures. It's not built of power. It's built with people. And then that physical dwelling where there will be some of those things, that comes as as completely, it's wholly a work of God. It will come down from heaven. And, And it's just a good reminder. Remember, we don't go up to heaven except maybe temporarily. Heaven in the scriptures is not an uh, up there place. It's just, it's, it could be codenamed God's space. It's where God is. I don't really know where it is. Nobody does. But the final destination is not up there. It certainly isn't chubby angels and clouds and these kind of things, right? The final destination of God's people is a renewed earth where everything as we know it passes away. It's still worth stewarding what we have. still worth taking care of the planet. still worth building things but only insofar as we point others to the deepest hope because those things will pass away and then the perfect will come and everything will be made new. Everything will be made different and we will be here on a a perfectly renewed earth. And I'm seeing heads nodding. I, I feel like you're with me in the midst of all this and yet I also would guess that it raises a question that I ask myself all the time if I'm honest which is like, man, when you say it this way, it sounds right, but then I have to go back to all the stuff of life and my work and my jacked up family and all the weird things going on in my life, and this seems so far away, right? (laughs) It seems so far off, the end of the world, like good grief. And we're surrounded by people everywhere that, that think we're kind of like a little soft in the head for even thinking about it, right? That's the nicest way to say it. I want to walk through one more brief passage that speaks to that concerns. And this is, written, uh, this is written by one of Jesus' other closest friends, Peter. Peter and John were, were two of Jesus' closest followers. And Peter writes in Second uh, Peter, uh, really the last words, his last known words that have been preserved. Because he writes Second Peter, and as far as we can tell, from a prison in Rome waiting to be executed, which happens shortly after he writes these final words. This is the last thing he wanted to say to the churches he had helped lead to remind them of what's most important before he died. He says this, 
This is now my second letter, he says in verse 1, that I'm writing to you. The first one was we know as First Peter. He says, in both of them, I want to, to stir you up. Means stimulate, rouse. El- elsewhere, it's translated as, as wake you up. Because it's easy to kind of fall. The, the metaphor is it's super easy to fall asleep. Kind of nod off in all the stuff of life. Providing for your family, taking care of your kids, doing all the stuff of life. He says, instead, I want to lovingly come up and kind of grab you firmly by each shoulder and give you a little bit of a shake. I want to, I want to stir you up by way of reminder, reminder, reminding you of, of, of your deepest hope. Verse 2, that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets like Isaiah. Knowing, first of all, verse 3, that, that at the end times, the, the, the last days, which we are in, Scripture teaches that the last days begin with Jesus going back to heaven, and they will end when he returns. So the last days aren't a future reality that we've got to like calculate carefully with a bunch of complicated calendars and such. We're in the last days. The last days started with these guys when the scriptures were written. They will end when Jesus returns. Uh, and he says, in those times, scoffers will come, false teachers following their own sinful desires. And here's the case they will make. And this will sound familiar. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, old guys fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying, look, this crazy future hope that you hold, it's, it's, it's a fairy tale. It's, it's weak-minded superstition. It's regressive. Why don't you be progressive like us, right? The world just keeps going. People keep dying. There's no other reality. Just make the best of what we have here. But Peter says, no. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through the water, uh, through water by the word of God. He says, look, God created everything we know through his word. And by that, uh, they, they, it says, and by these means, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. And by that same word, the heavens and earth uh, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. Here's what he says. Look, they forget that God made the whole world. He judged it once with water. That was the big flood. He promised he wasn't going to do that again until final judgment, but it's coming. He says, don't overlook the fact in the midst of it that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. His time is not like our time. And he is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And the reason you're still here in the midst of it, he says, is because God is wishing that none should perish, but all should reach repentance. He's patient with us when we think it's far off, when we think thinking about the end of the world as a source of hope is weird. Because it is. It's, it's really weird, right? He says, he says, in the midst of that, God's patient with you. He knows you're going to struggle to hold this as, as your deepest source of hope. But he has you here because more people need to hear about that hope. And they're going to hear about it through you. But the day will come like a thief. It'll be unexpected. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies, which is stars, will be burned up and dissolved 
all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The city of man will be exposed. And then this word for, 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 for exposed means, means broken apart. It's the same word described in the next verse uh, as dissolved. And that's where he ends. Since all these things are going to be dissolved, broken apart, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's the question before us. What does it look like to live as if, as if this was our deepest hope? From Isaiah's time to Jesus' time to Peter's time to John's time to the time of Augustine and to our time, humanity continues to exalt itself against God, building systems of defiance and independence from him. Like a kid who defiantly emancipates themselves from their parents' authority. Yet through it all, Jesus keeps patiently calling and inviting. Anyone with eyes to see and ears to hear, like we heard about in Isaiah 6 about a month ago, inviting them, if you can see, if you can hear, if any of that sounds like good news, he's inviting all of us into something deeper. Like Augustine said in his confessions, you made us with yourself as our goal. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. We rest in him until our final, our, our, our kind of final hope is fulfilled. When we see him face to face. And until then, like Isaiah said, we wait. We wait, according to 26 verse 8, in the path of your judgments. We can feel the judgment. I'm going to list some things here. I I don't want anybody to get on me for implying my support or lack of support to any one of these causes or events. I'm just listing. These are are like ripped from the headlines of my news app just according to this last week because we feel God's judgment everywhere in wars, the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, new conflicts where Azerbaijan is invading uh, Armenia and, and, and... and coming against these Armenians again, as has happened repeatedly throughout history. It rarely even makes our news because, for whatever reason, the West doesn't care that much. And then yesterday you wake up, Israel is at war with Hamas. And then I wake up this morning and Hezbollah got in on the fight, which is, which is another Islamic force with another neighboring nation of Israel. And they're starting to throw rockets in and they're backed by Iran. It's a mess. It's a hornet's nest all over the world. Each day you just don't know What is going to get added to the pile? You see it in wars. You see it in conflicts and divisions everywhere we look. Certainly in politics with with past presidents under 90-some indictments, current president under investigation, his kid under indictments. Not implying anything about any of them. Just saying like, it's a mess, right? Broken relationships in our personal lives closer to us. The earth groaning in natural disasters under the weight of all the sin of all humanity. In the midst of it all, Isaiah says, we can have perfect peace, but it just seems like a ways off, right? How can we have perfect peace? Shalom, shalom. In the midst of all of it. We're right there with Israel who heard Isaiah's words. Surrounded by by the threat of judgment 
But Isaiah, Jesus, Peter, John, and Augustine give us our answer. If our peace is built on the things of this world, on the city of man, we will have no peace because it's always cracking, it's always failing, it's always breaking. But if our mind is stayed on God, supported by, sustained by, upheld like a support structure, by his promises for the city of God that begin now with the people of God, but will only be fulfilled when he returns, then and only then will Isaiah's words be true in our life when he says, you keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Let's pray. Father, we just we praise you for your word. We praise you that that a, a strange, cryptic song from thousands of years ago in a language that that I suspect most of us do not speak. There's so much distance there. And yet when we really dig in, we see that it could have been written exactly just to us in our day, our time, exactly what we need to hear. We just praise you for your word. We praise you for the Holy Spirit that was at work in Isaiah's life and who filled Jesus and John and Peter and Augustine and who fills everyone here who belongs to you. We just ask that you would work that same encouragement in our hearts here today, that you would convict us of the false places, the, the, the places that are really more of the city of man that is passing away that we have put our hope in and that you would shift our hope to the city of God which exists first and foremost in the people around us. That we would invest more deeply in the city of God through relationships with others, through drawing near to you doesn't mean we're not involved in building other things, but we would hold most deeply to the hope of God's people and the future reality of being with you for all eternity. And that that would form us to be more and more like Jesus in this life. And that as that all happens, that you would give us opportunity to share that hope with others so that many more would come to know and hold to this hope and be with us in the city of God for all eternity. Being loved by and worshiping Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.